nothing is better than him. Yes? Yes, amen. It is such a blessing to get to join together and to sing that as a church family, to lift that up to the Lord. Um, I, I stood over here and back here during first service, and just the opportunity to hear our congregation declare that is such a blessing uh, to me. And so uh, thank you for that and for being here with us. It's a privilege for me now to introduce who's going to be uh, preaching this morning. This is Adam. Everybody say hi, Adam. Adam is our student pastor. If you're uh, new to us, then he's new to you in the same way that I'm new to you, and it doesn't mean anything. If you're someone who has been here for a while and you haven't had a chance to meet Adam, here he is. He's going to tell you a little bit more about himself, but he's going to pick up in our Luke series and carry us forward. So if you've got a Bible and you want to open it up to Luke chapter 2, he's going to close out that chapter for us um, and take God's word through the preparation that the Holy Spirit has done in him and open it up for us this morning. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I pray it's a blessing to you. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, it's great to be here with you all this morning just for the chance to be able to share my heart with you all is a great privilege, and, and I'm excited for this time. I'm just being in student ministry for a number of years. It's pretty common to say something offensive or off-color, and if I do that, I apologize, but you can email me at kurt at lcfliberty.org. Love to hear from you. Spam emails, the whole bit. Let's do it. So, <laughs> But anyway, um, I grew up here in Liberty, and I actually attended Alexander Donovan from K through fifth grade, and uh, as a school, we had the opportunity to see the President of the United States get off of Air Force One. I don't know the ins and outs, why he was here, all that stuff, but as a seventh grader, and you're going on a field trip, you're just kind of along for the ride, and so I went, I was pumped about it, and uh, as a seven-year-old, uh, I actually have a picture of myself here, actually. Uh, this is seven-year-old Adam. This is actually what I would look like today if I shaved. So that's why we're keeping the beard. But seven-year-old Adam was going to uh, Air Force One or to see the president get off of the plane. The problem with seven-year-old Adam is that he wasn't very tall. And the entire school was there. I happened to be in the back. I can't see. And so I did what any man would do. I'd stomp over to my teacher and i cry because I can't see. And there's a fifth grader that overheard me. And fifth grader went over to the teacher and said, well, can I, can I hoist him up on my shoulders? And the teacher said, sure. And I don't know if he did that because he was just being a nice guy or he just wanted me to stop crying, but he, he did. He hoisted me up on his shoulders and actually allowed me the opportunity to actually get close enough to where I could shake the president's hand as a seven-year-old. So it was really special. But the funny part about this story is that you all know this fifth grader. And I actually have a picture of him on the screen, too. This is the fifth grader, and you may think, who is that? That's, that's our lead pastor, Tim Fritzen. <laughs> so, uh, weird, peculiar story how, and it was a weird epiphany to me one day. I was actually interning at another church where Tim was the youth pastor, and I just had a weird, like, epiphany of just, Tim, did you go to Alexander Donovan? Yeah. Did you go see the president get off Air Force One? Yeah. Did you put a kid on his shoulder so he couldn't see? He's like, yeah. I was like, that was me. So it was weird how that came to be. But I say all that, though, because it's intriguing and interesting and sometimes funny to hear a story from someone you know at a younger age. 
And in this passage that we're going to look at, Luke's gospel is the only account that really gives us a picture of 12-year-old Jesus. And it's interesting for us to kind of take a look at who Jesus was as a boy. And so this is a, such a unique passage because no other gospel account paints a picture quite like this one. A fully 12-year-old Jesus. And it may seem odd on the surface why Luke even added this story in the first place, because from verse 40 to 41, Jesus has aged 12 years, and another 18 years will pass at the end of this chapter, at the beginning of chapter 3. And so the way this morning is going to shape up is that we're going to read the passage, work through it, and then pull out some application pieces that we can walk away with. But before we go any further, I do want to give us the, the main overarching point of our time together as a lens to look at this passage, and it's on the screen. The main idea is this. As followers of Jesus, knowing your identity allows you to joyfully and humbly submit to the authorities God has placed over you. Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52, it says this. Every year, his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them. And came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. This is the word of the Lord. One of the biggest enemies that you and I face when it comes to understanding and applying Scripture is the enemy of familiarity. Maybe you've heard this passage a number of times in your own study. You've heard people teach on it. You've heard sermons on it. And you're so familiar with it, it can sometimes blind us from seeing Jesus more clearly. But under the cover of familiarity, just underneath that, there can be fresh eyes, open ears, and soft hearts to what God has for us this morning. So may we see Jesus in this passage, fully 12, yet fully God. So let's take a moment and pray over our time together. Oh God, we come before you today, we are thankful for your word, we are thankful for the time that we get to corporately worship and praise you, and God, as we look at this passage, Lord, may you remove the obstacle of familiarity and restore our wonder to this story. God, may we see you more clearly, may we see Jesus more clearly, and may the Holy Spirit prompt us in ways that we can walk faithfully and obedient to what you've called us to. May you chip away at our hearts and bind us up and send us out, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So let's go back up to the top of the passage, verses 41 through 42. Luke says, Every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. 
And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. So Luke is starting to bring to light the devotion and faithfulness of Mary and Joseph to God. And Tim talked about ordinary faithfulness last week, and I think Mary and Joseph could be seen as ordinarily faithful parents. Every year, Luke points out, every year, they went as a family to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Now, the Passover festival was an eight-day celebration that commemorated the deliverance of the nation from Egypt and was one of the three great pilgrim feasts where you would actually travel to Jerusalem if you were a Jewish male. If you were a female, you weren't obligated to go, though you could if you wanted to. And from the text, we see that Mary and Joseph would take this journey together. And like I mentioned a little bit ago, Jesus is at the age of 12, which is significant. Jesus wasn't necessarily required to be there either, but it's safe to assume that Jesus went with Mary and Joseph year after year after year. And in Jewish terms, Jesus is at the age where he was starting to transition into adult responsibilities under the law. In most cases, that was 13 years of age. And so Jesus is at the point where he can attend this festival, kind of take note of what's happening around him so he can see in the year to come uh, what can, he can expect at 13 years old. Verses 43 through 45 say this, After those days were over, as they, Mary and Joseph, were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to find him, or to search for him. Now, I'm not a parent, so take this next statement as you will, but if you're the parent of the Son of God, I would like to think that on the checklist of items to pack, one of those would say, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Some of you are parents, though, and I'm sure you've had this moment where you've either accidentally left the house, you left the church, you left the area um, that you were standing in at the store, or it dawns on you, this van is awfully quiet. Or that my child is being so well behaved. And then you look around and you're like, well, that's what, they're not in the van (laughs) right now. Or they're not where I thought they were. And everything you're doing at that moment is put on pause. The, The shopping is on pause. The person you're talking to comes to a screeching halt. Your next goal is to find my child, right? (laughs) I won't make you do a show of hands. I've thought about it and I prayed about it and I'm not going to make you do it. But... (laughs) The panic, you know, the what-ifs, the heart-pounding, frantic search is on from that moment. I've been in student ministry since 2012, and one of my biggest fears has been going on a trip and then leaving three hours into the trip. Where's Johnny? (laughs) Don't tell me. (laughs) We left a child. You know, because I don't want to make that phone call. Yeah, we we had to turn around. We forgot your son. (laughs) there's been students though I've thought to myself quietly but what would it be like (laughs) I haven't done it but some have tiptoed that line but just imagine like between Mary and Joseph like that silent blame game that's going on I've done everything on this convoy couldn't he have at least done a head count or you know I've been doing everything else maybe just check to see if the son of God's with us You know, there's this silent 
blaming game going on between Mary and Joseph. And I say that jokingly, because in this, in this culture, it wasn't uncommon to not know where your child was. In a convoy, long distances, the women and children would be in the front, and the men and the older kids would be in the back, and it wouldn't be all that uncommon to not know exactly where your kid is. So they assumed that, they were, that Jesus was with the other So before we consider the side that Mary and Joseph were negligent, irresponsible, or distracted, let's look at it from the lens of grace, that we actually get to see the humanness of Mary and Joseph being parents to Jesus, who's fully 12. Verse 46 and 47. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. The scripture says that he was listening to the teachers. It also says that he was asking them questions. This was kind of a style of theological instruction in those days. That education by discussion and and oral defense. And students questioned their rabbis um, to learn what they had to teach. So it was natural enough for a boy to sit at the feet of his teachers, especially one that was about to turn 13, and talk theology. And the questions that Jesus would ask struck them in such a way that showed that Jesus, though he was still learning, had such a knowledge of God and delighted to follow him. Verses 48 through 50, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. One commentary I read said, Spoken like a true mother. <laughs> I mean, can you hear the frustration yet relief in Mary? Jesus responds like this Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. See, Mary tells Jesus that his father, meaning Joseph, and she had been searching for him. The contrast here that we see in Scripture is vitally important. You see in the passage that Mary says to Jesus, your father, lowercase f, and I have been anxiously searching for you. To which Jesus, fully 12, tiptoeing the line of manhood, responds, didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? Capital F. Why did you even have to search? Why did you even have to search? Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? See, there's this tension that Jesus is trying to navigate, this tension of Jesus being fully 12 being confronted with the obligation of being a 12-year-old boy and the obligation of being the Son of God. Jesus acknowledges here His Sonship, even though Jesus is fully 12 and fully aware of who He is. His acknowledgement of His identity, who He is, clarifies what He does here on earth. Verses 41, or 51 through 52 say, Then He went down with them, and came to Nazareth, and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. 
See, Jesus exemplified something that's been incredibly challenging to me in a season where we've been confronted with a slew of obscure rules to follow. But Jesus exemplified immediate obedience. Yes, Jesus was fully 12 years old and fully unaware that his parents had left him. The moment he was asked to obey, he did, joyfully and humbly. And we start to clam up and squirm in our seats even when we start talking about obedience because we have a problem with authority and submission. And Jesus actually shows us that there is fullness of joy and delight in obedience. And the last part of verse 51 strikes me. It says, his, his mother kept all these things in her heart. Even though Mary and Joseph didn't understand everything that was happening, it didn't throw them off the rails of living a life of obedience. Even though they were parenting the Son of God, they still carried the baton of obedient parenting. They were devoted. They were ordinarily faithful. They were faithful in the big and small, the mundane and the ordinary. They weren't perfect, but they were faithful. And when talking about Mary and Joseph being responsible parents and the humanness of them, one commentator, Thabiti Anyabwile, says this, Sometimes responsible parenting is better seen in how you respond to your failings than in your successes. Again, I'm thankful for the humanness and the, the faithfulness, the picture we get to see of Mary and Joseph in parenting a fully 12-year-old Jesus. So, all right, let's put some handles to this passage. Let's talk application here. We have all, at one time or another, placed our identity in things outside of being a child of God. So what does it look like to have an identity that is rooted in being a child of God? For me to just stand up here and say, you need to have your identity in being a child of God. It would almost be doing you a disservice without actually saying, let's just pump the brakes here and talk about what that means. I think we all, every single one of us, if I were to have a conversation with every single person, I think we all would want to say with full confidence, my identity is rooted in being a child of God. But if we're gut-wrenchingly honest, we place our identity, the essence of who we are, in things that were never meant to carry our identity. We put these labels on ourselves, like just being, being married or being a mom or a dad, the, the exceptional athlete, the lead on the team, the straight-A student. These things in and of themselves may not be bad things. Some of them are very good and admirable things to identify with, but they were never meant to be the foundation of who you are. We've seen this play out in a number of ways. It usually comes out of left field when you're confronted with the harsh reality that your identity has been placed in something or someone other than Christ. Like when the job or the career ends abruptly, when you didn't make the team, when you didn't get the second interview, when you're broken up with, when the bank account's in the red, when you're not able to compete or perform in the way you used to. It's Henry Nowen who came up with the five lies of identity, and we mentioned them a few weeks back, but it's worth mentioning again here. The five lies of identity, if you're taking notes, I'll say them twice so you can jot them down, but the five lies of identity are that I am what I have, I am what I do, 
I am what other people say or think of me. I am nothing more than my worst moment. And I'm nothing less than my best moment. I'll say them again. I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what other people say or think of me. I am nothing more than my worst moment. And I'm nothing less than my best moment. Who we are is based on who God says we are. So God in his word has something to say when it comes to who we are if we are found in Christ. And if you are in Christ, this is who God says you are. And if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, this is who you can be. And it's all found in God's word. Psalm 139, 14, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It says, I will praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. John 1, 12, I am a child of God. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. Romans 5, 8, I am loved, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isaiah 41.10, I am not alone. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I am a new creation. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is an, a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Ephesians 1.4, I am chosen, holy, and blameless before God. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. Ephesians 2.10, I am God's workmanship, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. I am redeemed, Isaiah 43.1. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. I am not forsaken, Deuteronomy 31.6. For the Lord your God is the one who will go with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. I am complete in Christ, Colossians 2.9-10. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. See, when your identity is firmly rooted in who God says you are, your identity cannot be shaken. These truths cannot and will not be taken from you. So when the job fails, when the spouse leaves, when the child rebels, when the position's filled, when you're released from your duties effective immediately, when the storm comes, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am God's workmanship. I am a new creation. I am loved. I'm a child of the Most High God. I'm not alone. I am redeemed. I am chosen. I'm not forsaken. And Jesus, being fully 12, understood what many don't figure out in a lifetime. You are who God says you are. It's not by your performance, but by your position by being a child of the Most High God. And when our identity is found in who God says we are, we're not only able to submit, but joyfully and humbly submit to the God-given authorities He's placed over us. We see this in the life of Jesus as a boy and beyond. He is our example in being a humbly and joyfully submitting to His parents and returning back home with them. But not only was Jesus obedient to His parents, but even obedient to his Father's will for his life. Jesus not only obeyed, but willingly, joyfully, and humbly submitted 
Knowing his identity allowed for joyful submission. There are a number of God-given authorities that as followers of Jesus, and even if you don't identify with Christ, that we are actually called to submit to. Some examples of those God-given authorities are your family, your parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, teachers and coaches, government officials, police officers, mall cops. They need love too. Um, Church leaders, pastors, employers, and supervisors. And I know hearing about God-given authorities and that we are to not only submit, but to joyfully and humbly submit can put a bad taste in your mouth, especially after the year that we've had. And I get it. I struggle with the idea too. I don't, in my flesh, desire to be controlled or micromanaged from the DMV or the IRS or somewhere else. It's a struggle to submit. A few examples that are particularly hard for me in my sinfulness and in my flesh, when the flight attendant comes around and tells everyone to turn off their cell phones or the plane won't properly take off, I have a bad attitude towards that. I get like, is this really going to keep our plane grounded here? (laughs) I have a wretched attitude towards rules when I don't see the logic to it. Another one is one of my friends lives in an apartment complex here in Liberty, and there's a roundabout between two parking lots. And every time I leave his apartment, I don't go the right way around the roundabout. Sometimes I just, somehow I just kind of convince myself, well, this way is quicker and more fuel efficient. No one drives on it at the same time as me anyways, and so I know it's blatantly the wrong way. Everyone knows it. Everyone with the brain knows it. Yet I've never driven through that roundabout correctly. <laughs> Have you ever convinced yourself that stop signs are relative or not or optional in certain places or neighborhoods? Speed limits are kind of like speed suggestions. You ever ripped the tag off your mattress? <laughs> Be honest. <laughs> These are lighthearted examples, but they do reveal something wretched about our hearts. Now, oftentimes, we see rules as things to be broken rather than obeyed. Now, we are always trying to finagle the loophole. We ask questions like, how far is too far? What if I do this instead of that? We compare lifestyles and outward spirituality with those around us. And Jesus, knowing his identity, even as a young boy, could have rebelled against his parents. If anyone had the chops or the resume to have Parents play by their kids' rules. It was Jesus. But he didn't do that. He was gentle. He was humble. He was submissive. It was God's will and design for children to submit to their parents. And Jesus' identity and sonship fueled a desire for his Father's will to be done, which leads to a life of obedience. As followers of Jesus, knowing your identity allows you to joyfully and humbly submit to the authorities God has placed over you. Know your identity. You are a child of the Most High God. And knowing this paves the way for a life of joyful and humble submission. See, the perfect obedience of Jesus, even as a young boy, is our greatest example of submission to authority, even when that submission would ultimately lead him to the cross. When the time came for Jesus to die for the sins of all humanity, he said to his father what he had been saying all of his life, 
Not my will, but yours. The fullness of Jesus' obedience was put on display on the cross. His obedience here on earth made a way for you and I to be seen as righteous before a holy God. Amen? Let's worship in response to that.